Hello, and thank you for joining us. This is the Fisheries Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the stories of the amazing people and projects that make up fisheries science. If you haven't already, you can follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at FisheriesPod. You can also support the show through Patreon, where you can make either a recurring or a one-time donation. And on that note, I'd like to specially thank John, Robin, Janet, Ben, Walker, and Garrett, who have stepped up to support the show. Thanks, you guys. We appreciate it. You can also support the show by shopping at our Teespring store, where you can buy Fisheries Pod shirts, hoodies, stickers, and face masks. My name is Anders Halverson, and I have two guests with me today, Dr. Emma Lundberg and Dr. Caroline Gottschalk-Dreschke. Caroline is an associate professor at the University of Wisconsin and was also the supervisor for Emma, who recently completed her PhD. So Emma, I wonder if you could start us off by describing the research that you did for your dissertation. Absolutely. So uh, my dissertation research is broadly related to and connected to river restoration and freshwater management. So I have three different chapters. Um, One part of it is related to the human dimensions and how people, uh, primarily managers, go about making decisions about stream restoration and sort of those different approaches that people have. Um, The second part of it, I uh, monitored and tracked brook trout movement through a system in northeastern Wisconsin. So we were looking at the timing and extent of brook trout movement, and we were using passive integrated transponder tags, so pit tags. And that was a ton of labor between electrofishing and setting up fish monitoring equipment. So we had two different arrays set up in the system. And then the third part of my dissertation is critiquing what I talk about in my dissertation as settler colonial logics that underpin a lot of the management actions and practices and ways that we think about freshwater systems. And that work was primarily related to dams. Um, in New England, but I really think a lot of those same concepts are, you can pick up on it in different parts of management and freshwater science in general. And I really loved, I didn't quite realize the, the context at first, but you used the word unsettling, fish, uh, unsettling mm-hmm. fisheries management in your dissertation quite a bit. So can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah, definitely. So um, unsettling is a, is a concept that you know, continues to pop up across disciplines right now. And so I started thinking about it uh, probably, I don't know, maybe four years ago, Caroline, we started talking about unsettling and sort of this idea that there's a big push for decolonization of science, of thought, of practice. And decolonization essentially requires the repatriation of land, of culture. And so if you're not doing those sorts of active engagements and supporting Indigenous peoples and repatriation, you can't really call your work decolonizing. But if you want to support these things, one way I thought about doing it was thinking about the process of unsettling, which is really about being really intentional about the the different practices that you do and how you engage in science, the questions that you ask without taking the power out of something that's really important. So decolonization is incredibly important. But if I'm not able to do that and I want to support that, my idea was to not call my work that because that would take a lot of the emphasis out of that particular movement, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I get it. 
I also like how it sort of has a double entendre, which is it's sort of unsettling to think think in these terms, right? But you're also referring specifically to settlers on the land. So I, I sort of love yeah. that word and the way you use that. <laughs> Thank you. And it definitely can be uncomfortable sometimes when you're facing, you have to think about the historic context of things and how practices have come into being over time and the different engagements humans and freshwater resources have had. And that can be uncomfortable. Um, and so it takes you know some practice and self-reflection, I think. Okay, so... <clears throat> Um, let's get back to that, but let, let's try to get Caroline into the conversation a little bit. So Caroline, tell us more about your research and what you do and maybe how you, how you ended up with Emma as a graduate student. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, the wonders of the universe <laughs> brought, brought me and Emma together. So I am an associate professor in the program in composition and rhetoric in the Department of English at University of Wisconsin-Madison. And that seems like a funny place for a fish and river person to be. But how that sort of comes about is that I have graduate training in rhetorical studies, which is kind of broadly a focus on argument or public argument discourse, how people think about the world around them, argue about the world around them, shape the world around them. And I have always really had an interest in kind of the flip side of that, of how the world around us shapes the language that we use and vice versa. And um, my interest has really been in water and how people relate to water systems through fisheries, but also thinking about restoration, urban restoration, agricultural conservation efforts. And uh, that really kind of drives my work. And so Emma and I actually got together uh, several years ago, five years ago, six years ago, maybe at this point, when I was a faculty member at University of Rhode Island, where I had a split appointment. So I was half time in the Department of Writing and Rhetoric, and I was half time in the Department of Natural Resources Science. And I think that maybe better reflects <laughs> kind of the spirit of the work that I do and how I go about it. Um, and so I was working there um, when I first arrived in Rhode Island. And <laughs> I've told this story to you, but when I first got the job in Rhode Island, I flew back out there. It was um, early spring in 2011 and was driving through a town called Wakefield, Rhode Island in Southern Rhode Island and was driving over, you know, just a a bridge on the main street of town, like a million other bridges over main street in new England. And I looked over and there was a relatively large man sitting on a very narrow piece of wood <laughs> propped up against a mill dam in town. And he had a gigantic net and he was flipping what appeared to be fish over his head <laughs> over the dam. And I said to my husband, pull over, stop, stop the car. I need to know what's going on here. And I uh, had my very small baby with me. It was a couple months old at the time and walked up to this guy and said, what in the world are you doing? And he was actually scooping up alewives and pitching them up over, um, over this mill dam in town so that they could complete their spring migration. You know, this was a, um, a dam right at the bottom of the Saugatucket River. And so that really shaped, like that chance encounter shaped a lot of the work that I was doing in Rhode Island, which was largely focused on how people interact with coastal rivers, river systems, how they think about managing them, how that works uh, largely related to fish migration, you know, given, given the context we were in. And um, through that work, I was partnering with some other faculty at University of Rhode Island and through um, Maine also and New Hampshire, 
on a project that turned into uh, what was an NSF EPSCOR funded project called the Future of Dams, which was meant to really focus kind of across scales, across watersheds, across states, thinking about how we make decisions about dams and what that means for people along the river and for all kinds of, um, you know, biological communities in the rivers. And through that project, I had the chance to recruit a grad student, which was a tricky thing. I mean, that would that's a tricky thing generally to find a really cross-disciplinary person to think of the sort of questions I was interested in. That was maybe even trickier six years ago. Mm-hmm. It was like people like Emma are few and far, be- far between and, and certainly were also at the time. And so I put out a call looking for graduate students, had people apply and was just totally taken with Emma's application materials, which in part talked about the town that she grew up in, in New Hampshire and thinking about how people argue about and think about and talk about the dam in that town, the risk of the dam in that town, kind of how it shapes life there. And so um, I was lucky to have Emma accept that research assistantship. And we started working together at University of Rhode Island. And then I moved over to UW-Madison in 2017, I think. And Emma followed the next year. And um, that really kind of kept our focus still on fisheries and restoration and communities and how they think about risk and connection to rivers and really shifted the focus into looking at southwestern Wisconsin, specifically in the Driftless area, which has been kind of the heart of my research here in Wisconsin. All of my teaching and research really focus on river systems in southwestern Wisconsin, which um, increasingly is uh, conversations about flooding, about stream restoration, about brook trout conversation, about recreational angling and agriculture. And all of those questions definitely have kept me busy and continue to keep me busy. And so we've been working on those. And so you've worked together, I think, on a some papers. Are you publishing some of the chapters of your dissertation, Emma? We are. Yeah. We have uh, one out and then one was accepted yesterday. Oh, nice. Congratulations. Okay. (laughs) Timely. So what are some of the things that you find? I mean, what are the controversies? What are the controversial aspects of restoration in the Driftless area? (laughs) Where to begin? You can't see Emma's face, but Emma's face is exploding in excitement and confusion. (laughs) Um, There are a whole lot of controversies, I would say, about thinking about restoration that run the gamut. You know, I think um, there's the question of definition, kind of definitional terms around restoration that is true of restoration conversations across the world. Certainly thinking about what counts as restoration is that returning a river system to its kind of pre-settlement state is that looking at some other kind of target or reference. Um, So that's part of it, I think. There also is sort of a bundle of discussions and disagreement related to riparian vegetation, which maybe wouldn't seem like such a hot topic, but it is in the Driftless area. Yeah, As... Can you expand upon that? <laughs> yeah. I, I yeah, that was Caroline. Quite interesting. I will have... I will a bit and Emma should chime in. This is this has been really a large focus of attention for the last five years or so, along with our colleague Eric Booth, who is uh, a hydrologist, kind of hydroecologist at UW-Madison, where um, there yeah, is this strong disagreement about thinking about the role of riparian vegetation, um, particularly related to stream temperature, 
moving into the future and stream restoration efforts uh, across the Wisconsin portions of the driftless largely look pretty similar and use uh, many of the same sort of techniques, which often involve removing riparian trees and scraping back the banks a bit um, and then reseeding and grass and folks on this kind of... Why, why is that the preferred technique? Well, <laughs> there's a lot to that, I think. I think some of the um, some of the reasons for that that we've heard, we have interviewed lots and lots of managers across the region about restoration techniques. And part of that is simply about um, removing potential flood debris. So these are systems that flood often and, and pretty severely. And so there are some concerns about trees um, harming infrastructure, road crossings, and things like that. Okay. Part of that is about angler access. I think pretty straightforwardly that this is an area with a lot of recreational angling. It's a huge driver in the economy. You know, this is a pretty isolated, under-resourced region, generally speaking. And um, fishing is kind of big bucks, and so getting people close to the stream is important. But how? I don't still don't quite see how a tree prevents that. Well, a tree snags lines for people who aren't necessarily fantastic fly anglers like myself. Are I mean, mostly, I'm not are fantastic. Are they mostly fly fishermen in this area then? Many fly fishermen in the area. Not entirely. And Emma, you should feel free to chime in on that too. Well, Ray and I sometimes dunk a worm in the driftless. We do it. We do it. So... Partly, so we're yeah. cutting down trees in part to so someone's back cast doesn't get caught in the tree. In part. In part. Just in part. Okay. In part. In part. Um, other pieces of that, some people point to a sort of historical referent of prairie, saying that Wisconsin sort of a prairie area and these riparian areas were um, potentially prairie grass filled, which is kind of up to, for debate as well. Um, and then... Other issues, I think, are just about kind of supporting um, private property and farms, you know, so thinking about um, avoiding sort of eroding farm fields. Well, that's which a, is a big issue, thing, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so is there a lot of riprap going on? So, yes, there is a very large amount of riprap on the Wisconsin side, kind of in the Wisconsin portion of the driftless, which is allowable in the Wisconsin permitting, although that has been, it's up for discussion right now. So there, there's been a group that's kind of revising those stream standards and thinking about the role of riprap. But, but generally, we're looking at projects that kind of remove a lot of box elder, some willows, reseed, you know, scrape the banks a bit, reseed, um, and then install riprap um, in part because of the frequent, well, yeah, in, in part with the logic, at least, of frequent and increasingly frequent floods and the potential destruction of private property. Okay, I have to ask, are these Rosgen projects? They're not really, no. which is fascinating, right? So interesting. Um, you better tell us, had... tell us about more about Dave Rosgen. First. I have to tell you more about Dave Roskin. <laughs> well, I mean, I could, but it's, I, I'm curious to hear your take on it. <laughs> I'm sort of curious to hear your take. Um, you know, I uh, everything I know about Roskin comes largely from my wonderful colleague Rebecca Lave. So you should, the listener should read her book Fields yeah. and Streams if they haven't already did that. Um, but I did have this really interesting conversation, just thinking about the sort of history of debate about restoration techniques. So. 
Ruskin being kind of on one side, looking at uh, what he calls natural channel design, right? Which is um, has been criticized as being somewhat of a cookbook or template, you know, that that uh, looking at the kind of structure that you want in a stream, potentially that you can sort of identify what needs to happen, sort of follow that recipe, um, and that will work as a as a useful form of stream restoration. There are criticisms to that for sure. And I had a really interesting conversation recently with a couple of folks in Wisconsin who were um, suggesting that Wisconsin's lack of budget actually prevented a lot of fisheries mm-hmm. restoration folks across the state from attending Rosgen classes, which were you know, kind of shopped so to a lot of state, so totally, totally uh-huh. uh, shopped to a lot of kind of state restoration fisheries managers. And that Wisconsin missed out on that because there wasn't budget to attend these seminars. And so this person was arguing, Wisconsin actually, in some ways has this kind of more progressive dynamic view, because they kind of missed out on the Rosgen Wars in many That's ways. Funny. Which okay. seem to track, you know, and I sort of love the the material basis of that. If there's no there's no funding to send your entire state crew to these trainings, then the trainings kind of don't show up in the in your restoration plans. And I just wanted to add that another criticism of Rosgen really is on his techniques is it doesn't acknowledge the dynamic nature of a floodplain, right? And the fact that the river yes. needs to move back and forth. It sets in place these permanent structures and tries to mimic what a river would look like if it was allowed to move while at the same time creating an impossible situation for the river to move. Yeah. And that's increasingly or especially impossible, I think, in the Wisconsin context than in the Driftless area. So for folks who haven't traveled through southwestern Wisconsin, which is maybe a lot of people, um, it is a super hilly, you know, steep, hilly part of the state. It is not flat Midwestern, you know, cow and prairie as far as the eye can see kind of thing. And that steepness of those hills has resulted in a huge amount of post-settlement alluvium throughout the area. So white settlement into the area starting in the 1840s or so, to get back to some of Emma's earlier talk about unsettling, thinking about settlement on the landscape, um, all of the agricultural practices that were imported to the area from Ohio and Indiana and Europe um, really did not well suit the steep area and resulted in this huge loss of soil from these hilltops, steep hilltops into valley bottoms that is several meters thick in some places. And so already when you're thinking about streams in the driftless area and restoration in the driftless area, you're already kind of working against or need to be thinking about the idea that these streams are um, actually you know, kind of encased or, or channeled into these kind of artificially steep, um, steep and narrow banks in some ways, that there already is a profound lack of floodplain connection because of really the history of just white settler agriculture. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think that also gets back to what we're talking about with trees as well. So when you have these really tall banks and then the trees fall in, you know, there's this influx of sediment that comes in as well. And so with the concerns about erosion and stream restoration and sediment flux, I think that that kind of plays in as well. So if you have trees that are pulling in a lot of bank sediment, that is also sort of something that comes up in debate a lot with stream restoration. That when the trees fall, they actually cause erosion, you're saying, because of the root ball? Yes, yes. but... 
but that may be time limited. It may be limited in space. I think it's something that alarms people as they watch it happen and think that there is a huge erosion problem. And that may or may not be the case. I mean, you're sort of working against this massive post-settlement alluvium. And it also, you may not have, you know, there may be a net balance essentially over the span of a reach just because something is sort of crumbling in one area of a reach doesn't mean that it's uh, leaving that reach entirely. Gotcha. Yes. So I was thinking mainly about the arguments that people are making, but how they actually play out on the stream is a little uncertain. So in practical terms, then, what does it mean, Emma, to practice stream restoration unsettling, unsettling stream restoration? Uh, I feel like that could mean a lot of different things depending on where you are and what the context is, really. And so I guess if I'm thinking specifically about the idea of unsettling is thinking about the history of the area. And so kind of what we're talking about with the Driftless area and recognizing that uh, settlement history and how it's played out over time. So not just um, a specific act that happened in the past, but something that's ongoing. Um, So you have these ongoing landscape issues and stream restoration, you know, aims to fix a lot of these problems. But if you're not really acknowledging where these issues have come from and that it's directly related to some of these settlement issues over time, I think that that kind of you lose a little bit of that um, important context that will help you make informed decisions that take into consideration the communities that are impacted now, the species that are impacted now, and what's happened over time and how it's connected not only to the ecological realm of things, but also the um, human aspects too, and those relationships and how they've changed over time. So dealing directly with communities and finding out what's important, I think is a really big part of that and recognizing what's happened historically. And so you spent a lot of time on the ground actually just talking to people, interviewing people who were lived nearby or recreating there. Or what were their thoughts about how this area should be managed? There's a, a lot of different thoughts. So for um, the research aspect, we primarily interviewed managers because we were really interested in how management decisions are made um, and how sort of those individual you know, values and perspectives shape the decisions that are made. So we didn't do interviews with local folks that are using the resource because that wasn't part of the project. But I spend a lot of time talking to anglers and really anybody that's interested in, you know, talking and um, having a conversation about frustration or fisheries or rivers in general. And so depending on the region, I, I feel like you'll get a lot of different views. I mean, I have a, there's a landowner that I know up in Northeastern Wisconsin who really advocated for stream restoration to happen on their reach of property outside of their home. So they worked really hard to find funding sources and to have somebody come in and design this project. And so something across all of these projects and regions that I've noticed is that people, even if, you know, the decision-making processes are different, it's always based on a deep care for that particular system and everybody wants to do what's right and so what's right is kind of a subjective um, thing, I would say. Yeah. What do you think, Caroline? I agree. <laughs> so what's right is whatever creates the biggest fish, right, for you to catch. Well, it okay. depends on who you ask. Right. Yeah. yeah. I think for, for some folks that's true. And for some folks, it's whatever is right is whatever keeps them from losing 
an acre of corn. For some people, it's whatever keeps their cows watered. For some people, it's whatever provides the most beautiful scenery. You know, it's people have different different desires and different hopes out of what these stream systems will will do and look like and and how they interact with them. Okay, so 20 years from now, what's the driftless area going to look like? Ooh. Ah. That's a good question. You know, gosh. <laughs> I feel like I have an optimistic version and a pessimistic version and I'm trying to uh make sense of those or reconcile them in my in my head. I think um I'll I'll give it a go and then Emma should give it a go. I think the the driftless portion of Wisconsin is really dealing with a crisis of flooding and that crisis of flooding is worsening and accelerating and that's going to be a big big issue that will shape the landscape and how people are shaping the landscape. So what's so, driving what's driving that? Yeah, so this is a region that has flooded historically because it is so steep, you know, filled with these cold water streams. Um, but climate change is really significantly impacting southern and western Wisconsin um, in terms of precipitation. So we're getting much more precipitation. We're also getting, you know, like a lot of people, these these weird um, warming events and cooling events. So we're getting these kind of pulses of snow melt, which wouldn't have happened before. And we're also getting storms at unusual times. So the largest recent recorded flood in uh, the Kickapoo and Coon Creek watersheds in southwestern Wisconsin happened in 2018, just recently. And that was an August and September flood. You know, it's like you shouldn't have to worry about a catastrophic 500-year flood event in August, right? And it's it's um, doesn't go with our <laughs> understanding of hydrology, but this is what they're dealing with right now. And so I think there's a lot of reaction going on, you know, necessary reaction to think about, whoa, how do we manage these stream systems and riparian areas and upland land management practices in light of that? I think that's going to continue to shape the area really significantly. I think there are also just, you know, economic forces of how people can survive on the landscape. So there's a lot of agriculture and there are definitely a lot of pushes for uh, perennial grass, for instance, like really good kind of conservation practices on the land. Um, and then there are just a lot of kind of market-based pressures at the same time. When you say um, so agriculture, I is it cows or is it crops or what are we talking about? So it is a mixture, but I think unique to this area of the Midwest is that it the hills don't allow for these sort of mega farms that we see in other places in the Midwest. Like I spent a lot of a lot of years in Iowa, we don't have farms like that. You know, these are small, two acre, ten acre, fifty acre, hundred acre farms. There is a lot of dairy and beef cattle, and then there are corn and soy operations as well. Okay, Emma. What's it going to look like in 20 years around there? You know, I, based on just some of the conversations I've had over time and with these issues of flooding and water temperatures and fish populations and these changes that I think are, you know, actively happening in stream restoration, I feel like, you know, this could be totally on left field. Who knows? But I feel like there's going to end up being a larger portion of trees along the riparian area, maybe like higher in the headwaters if you're thinking about, you know, cold water 
reserve areas and things like that. And a lot of other places are, are kind of preserving those forested riparian areas. And so I can imagine there's probably going to be a lot more easements where, so Sorry, back to the trees, why, why will there be yeah. more trees? What's dr- yeah. what drive that? Yeah. So um, one management practice that can be done in some areas to maintain cooler water temperatures is this idea of having more riparian vegetation. So you'll have trees that kind of shade the stream. Um, I, I mean, a lot of these, these systems are cold water streams, so they're groundwater driven, um, which maintains a cold temperature year round, which is why there are so many really robust trout populations there you know, between brook and brown trout. Um, there's really impressive densities of, of fish there. So um, if you're thinking about uh, brook trout versus brown trout populations, then some work that's occurred over time where brook trout are more likely to inhabit these headwater systems where there's more canopy cover, um, whereas larger sort of brown trout would typically be in larger bodies of water or downstream in lower reaches and more sort of that grass vegetation cover in many places. But I think there's some of that work going on now and in the drift list with a lot of the other managers that are looking at that distribution of species as well and how that relates to stream restoration, which is really exciting. But anyway, I don't know where I was going with that anymore. (laughs) I'm so sorry. So more trees. What about the... um... You know, are we going to work on attaching the stream to the floodplain a little more so that it can absorb these floods? I would love that deep in my heart. That that would be my goal, right? So I think, you know, and this is something that Emma and I both have talked with Eric Booth about extensively. Eric and I talk about this all the time. Just really thinking about this issue of post-settlement alluvium is like really, really needs to be addressed. Mm-hmm. You know, it is, it's the elephant in the room that kind of isn't really talked about a whole lot necessarily and um, that we have to think about how to address that I think and how to think about floodplain reconnection that really works to connect the floodplain and this was Emma um, led some work that we did using methodology called Q method that sort of is uh, and she could describe it in, in more detail but we sort of conducted this workshop that Emma led um, as part of the Trout Unlimited Driftless Area Restoration Effort meeting in February of 2020, so right before the pandemic. Um, And we had about 35 participants, I think, sit down and kind of sort through this sort of panel of arguments about different stream restoration techniques and beliefs and values in the region. And she can talk in much more detail about all of this. And this is the the paper that was accepted with minor revisions yesterday. So way to go, Emma. And the one thing that we really found in common across all of the people responding to this survey in real time is an interest in floodplain reconnection. Like everybody says that they prioritize that. But then what that looks like in practice Mm -hmm. is a wide variety of different things. And so Eric and I have been working together to do a lot of um, just measuring stream cross sections and doing that before and after restoration projects, kind of look at the differences before and after um, in channel channel form and channel area, cross-sectional area. And, you know, the projects aren't doing enough, frankly, for, for any sort of version of kind of flood flood control or flood peak attenuation. And so my hope is that we'll start talking about that a lot more. Um, and also 
think much more connectively across kind of reach scale restoration projects and upland land management practices, like that we have to be thinking about these entire watershed systems as systems um, and get out of our head of just thinking about, you know, 200 meters of stream, 500 meters of stream. And I think that might happen, you know, that's, that's my sort of optimistic version is, is people realize, you know, this flooding issue is really bad and getting worse. And sometimes those sort of crises really prompt um, an opening for ways of thinking about things that wouldn't have been possible, you know, without a sort of crisis situation. So I don't wish that crisis situation on anyone, but I do think that it potentially opens up some really different conversations about how we're managing streams in the area. A crisis is a terrible thing to waste, as somebody once said. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> okay, so Emma, could you tell us a little more about your Q studies? Yeah, sure. So Q method, Q methodology is essentially a way to look at human subjectivity. So it goes by the tagline, the study of the scientific study of subjectivity. But essentially, um, Q method is a way of having folks prioritize certain arguments along a distribution. So on the think of it as like, um, so the two sides are smaller areas, and then it goes into a triangle. And so people organize different arguments related to each other. So, uh, for example, one of the arguments that we had included that folks were looking through was uh, stream restoration projects should aim to grow large brown trout. That question or that statement was not prioritized by any participant that was involved in that. So, um, when you're thinking about the key main areas that folks are concerned with. Wait, no one wanted big brown doing... trout? No, Nobody? not Nobody really. Nobody wanted big brown trout. What's, what's wrong with these people? <laughs> well, in, in relation to the other arguments that were presented, so you would have floodplain reconnectivity. And so all of the different groups that came out of this workshop prioritized floodplain reconnection to the stream channel. And so essentially each individual prioritizes these different arguments that are made. And so from that, you can, okay, let me take a step back. Each of these arguments is assigned a number. And so you enter these numbers based on where they were positioned on the sort. And then you can create, um, it's pretty much a principal component analysis and you get different groups. So you come up with different factors based on how people organize and prioritize these different ideas. So you can think of it as a snapshot of subjectivity or a prioritization of different arguments. So what is important? What do people either really agree with or really disagree with? And so you can see areas of consensus and then areas of disagreement related to stream restoration. So from that, you can kind of get the key themes that are really important how people are kind of trying to make decisions. And then you can pull that into the context you're thinking about. So if everybody wants floodplain reconnectivity, what are the practices that people are doing? Is that really playing out in the field? So if there are limitations to how the floodplain is being reconnected to the stream channel, what are the limitations? And based on interviews and talking to people, it seems like maybe funding is an issue, maybe different regulations or restrictions on how much sediment you can move is an issue. Where are you going to put that sediment? So you have to think about it in terms of 
what's possible and practical, what is able to be funded, how can you bypass these limitations um, that are put in place? And so, yeah, it's an issue of, you know, we want to do the right thing and we want to reconnect the floodplain, but there are are practical and, um, you know, funding mechanism limitations to how you can actually do projects. So I think the barrier to a lot of, you know, innovative work really comes down to how can we change what is possible, what is practical, how can we make different decisions and innovate design that also, you know, incorporates bypassing what's restricting actual change, if that makes sense. Yeah, I can see how that could be invaluable as a management tool, too. Okay, so Emma, your dissertation is particularly Mm -hmm. interdisciplinary insofar as you're doing, you're tracking the brook trout for one chapter, and you're doing the Q methodology study of people's um, subjectivity in another chapter. Was that tricky to manage in academia? Yeah, I think Caroline and I have talked about this every day for the last five and a half, six years. Every day we've known each other. (laughs) Every day. (laughs) It's like, um, you know, you get imposter syndrome in not just one discipline, but like three. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of fun, I guess. But I mean, I think it's really rewarding to think across disciplines, but I think it is also incredibly hard because you're not just thinking about the human aspect, but you're also thinking about the fisheries aspect and how do they connect and how do you make meaning out of those connections as well? And how do you explain that in a way that is both useful for, you know, management practices that deal with human action, but they're sort of monitoring the biological components. So I feel like, you know, putting those pieces together in ways that are useful could be really beneficial for management, for engagement, um, and for understanding human relationships, I think. But it is really challenging. Caroline's yeah, been doing sure. it a lot longer than I have. I imagine, just to connect that, now you're going on to work for the Fish and Wildlife Service soon, is that correct? That is correct, yes. So I'm starting a new position um, next month. And what is that going to be? I, I imagine that this, having done this interdisciplinary study will be invaluable as a uh, someone working for the Fish and Wildlife Service. I hope so. I, I hope so. I'm really excited about it. So I, this job was described to me as a Jane of all, all trades position, which is a, a lovely description for, for me, I would say. So it's a combination of monitoring brook trout populations before and after stream restoration projects in the Lake Michigan Basin, so priority areas for um, our office, where it's located in Green Bay. And so in addition to that, I'll be doing some collaborative agreement work. I'll be doing um, a little bit of climate change-related work. I'll be doing a little bit of stream restoration, dam removal sort of involved work, and I'll still be able to maintain my collaborations with folks I know at DNR that I've been working with. So it's kind of all over the place, which is great for me because I I love being able to, you know, work in a lot of projects. Um, But they have really encouraged me to maintain the the interdisciplinary work that I do, which is really exciting to me. Yeah, that's great. Sounds like they designed the job description just for you. (laughs) It feels that way. Yeah. And how about you, Caroline? So you have been trying to do, or not trying, you have been doing interdisciplinary <laughs> work for a long time. Is it, mm-hmm. is that um, tricky? It's incredibly tricky. It's incredibly exhausting. You know, it's the, it's sort of the, the 
pep talk and then the realistic talk I give to students all the time is that I do I do the work that I do in the way that I do it because it's the way that I see the world, you know, and it's it's I think increasingly the only way we're going to solve or at least work to address any of these sort of complex problems related wait, to. No, wait, I thought science was just going to solve it all. <laughs> all we need it's is not. natural science. It's not, and yet I find myself you know, in conversations in the humanities, like humanities isn't going to solve things alone either. And so that's tricky. It's kind of always, I'm always the least popular person in the room, <laughs> you know, in some ways it's like saying the thing that people don't quite want to hear disciplinarily. And I think you can hear that even in, in the way that Emma was describing the Q method study and thinking about restoration that like, I really, really feel strongly that we need to think about how we need to think about the language that circulates about stream systems and how we interact with stream systems, right? And then that also needs to be connected with really deep understanding of those systems. It's like, there's a reason I'm out in the stream measuring stream cross sections and uh, greenhouse gas flux data and stream temperature. And I spend a lot of time around hydrologists and ecologists really trying to learn about these kind of different ways of understanding these driftless area streams, along with how people argue about them, describe them, think about them, think about their own place in them. And so I do this work because it's like, I think it's what's needed and it's what interests me, but it sucks <laughs> to, to work this way. You know, it, it really, it takes a toll. And, and you can hear that even in the way I um, introduce myself is like, I'm always a little embarrassed to say, oh, well, I'm a professor of English, but like, I really do know what I'm talking about. I swear, you know, it's, that's a really hard place to be in all the time you know, all the time. And, um, and universities, you know, of course, are doing a little better about working across disciplines. But they are also challenged to think about the structures of particular departments and schools and colleges and disciplines and how that works. So training a student like Emma is tricky, you know, finding a place, a program that will fit her and that will, um, connect her with the different resources that she needs. So we did a lot of finagling. Um, Emma was in an ecology PhD program at University of Rhode Island, and then in the cross-disciplinary Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies at UW-Madison. Uh, but that also meant, you know, leaning really heavily on Matt Mitro at the Wisconsin DNR, who did a lot of Emma's training and kind of led a lot of her field work. And just like always needing to draw from people all across the university in ways that aren't always legible, even in the university, and then aren't always legible, you know, to folks outside the university. So it's, it's tricky, you know, you're publishing in all different kinds of journals all the time. It's like, I'm constantly switching my brain between, okay, who do, who do, who do I need to talk to and in what way? And how do I make this legible to a fisheries biologist? And then my meeting an hour later is with a, uh, you know, National Endowment for the Humanities or something. It's just constantly recalibrating based on who you're, who you're talking with and sort of what you're trying to do. And that's just really very hard. Well, is it getting easier, do you think? Is academia becoming more um, open to interdisciplinary work? I think it thinks it is. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. It thinks it is. You know, I, I'm serious and joking at the same time. It is like it just it it is. So when I was a PhD student, you know, I was a in the Department of English at University of Illinois at Chicago, 
And then I was also an NSF IGERT fellow in the Landscape Ecological and Anthropogenic Processes Program. And that took some finagling to do. Like we, they sort of got in trouble for having an English department student as one of their NSF IGERT fellows. Mm-hmm. And NSF has now, I think, seen the the value of that potentially. But you know, that was that was hard to navigate. And when I was coming out of my PhD and kind of thinking about where I fit, it was very unclear where I would fit out in the world. You know, like really, really unclear. And my awesome. LEAP advisor, the sort of NSF Igert advisor, Mary Ashley at University of Illinois at Chicago said, well, you know, maybe like Google around and try to find people who are doing things that you'd be interested in doing. And, you know, there were like three (laughs) of those people, not 20, not 50. That was hard. So I I do think that's changing, that that work is more legible. And I think people want to support it, but also funding mechanisms haven't quite caught up to that. Academic Mm -hmm. disciplines haven't caught up to that. Tenure committees. I mean, it's kind of a scary thing going up for tenure in a department that works differently than the way that you work. Mm -hmm. Um, So So yeah, I think it's better than it was 10 years ago, but also has really a a longer way to go than universities think they have to go. Okay, so there are five questions that everybody is supposed to, that I'm supposed to ask everybody on this podcast. Okay. Maybe I'll switch back and forth. Okay, I'm going to start with you, Caroline. So you get question number one, because I know what your answer is. I already know your answer to this one, Emma. Caroline, what is your favorite fish? I I think about this a lot and it somewhat changes. So I have multiple fish for different reasons. So I love deep in my heart, I guess I got to go with alewives in part because they were a disgusting nuisance on the beach in Chicago when I was growing up and we had these big like fish kills. And then I came to love them so much with all my heart. when I moved to New England. Thanks to, so, net, thanks to the net guy. Thanks to the net guy. You know, and I lived on a, a coastal river in Rhode Island. So I, you know, they'd swim past my house every year and then come back and visit the next year. So I'll go with alewives, but yeah. Alewives. I'm, I'm, I'm just assuming <laughs> yours is brook trout. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's not even worth asking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> rug at home so there you go all right (laughs) so emma what is your favorite memory from your career so far uh okay so in my position at wisconsin dnr i have done a lot for matt mitro and um he's been absolutely wonderful and you put this data logger into uh the stream on elk creek in the driftless area and a beaver, a wonderful beaver, uh, built a dam right below it, just, you know, a few meters downstream. So years later, he was like, we got to get that data log. We got to know the temperature. I was like, okay, how are we going to do this? So he let me borrow his, <laughs> his dry suit from when he was a graduate student. And I brought my snorkel from home and I was the person who dove into the beaver pond and my coworker was managing the floaty with some flippers and trying to make sure that I didn't get lost because the dry suit was leaking because it, it, I, you know, Matt, if you listen to this, it's not because you're old, but the dry suit was cracking. (laughs) (laughs) And so I got beaver pond water all, you know, in the dry suit 
I got it under my mask and I was just really scared that I was going to get, you know, um, you know, a water disease, but I didn't, everything was great. We got the data. It was awesome. And then we put it back. Oh, nice. Put the logger back. So Impressive. Emma's also deathly afraid of snapping turtles. Mm. <laughs> so I'm impressed that you did that. Yeah. I was panicking. I was panicking. Um, my coworkers were laughing at me, but I was very scared, but I still did it. Okay. Well, Caroline, what is your dream job and location? Ooh, that is a soul searching one. I mean, let's say my dream job is the one that I have, that I have cultivated painstakingly to create for myself in many ways. And um, dream location is sadly not Madison, Wisconsin, but I'm happy it's attached to my job. So I will stay here. But my favorite place on earth is the Pier Marquette watershed in Northwestern Michigan. I spent tons of time there as a little kid and I still spend tons of time there as an adult uh, and really sparked my love for all things related to people and rivers and river systems. So I almost said grayling to the, what's your favorite fish? Oh, okay. Yeah. But yeah, Pier Marquette. Okay. Um, Emma, if money was not an issue, what is one project that you would like to work on? Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, so good. That's a great question. It would have to be some combination of, Beaver, Beaver Dam analogs, yeah. tags, radio telemetry, movement, and a dam removal all in one in an inland stream. All right. That sounds fun. I mean, I don't, that's not quite like Elon Musk level dreaming, but. She needs like $5,000 to do that. I know. <laughs> well, you know, I, you know, you're probably right. <laughs> But it's like a dream. It. Yeah. Okay. Um, and Caroline, final question. If there's one point or principle that you could have programmed into everyone's head, what would it be? Oh, that you need to think about streams from multiple perspectives. Perfect. Great answer. How about that? Great answer. Okay. Well, thank you, Dr. Lundberg and Dr. Um, Gotchak Drushki for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you so much, <laughs> Anders. I will put the email address of both of my guests, as well as my email address, in the show notes if you want to get in touch with any of us. Emma and Caroline are also pretty active on Twitter, so you might want to look for them there. I always enjoy their posts. I hope that you enjoyed this show. You can download past, present, and future episodes on your favorite listening app. Or you can stream it on Spotify or at thefisheriespodcast.com. And don't forget, you can help support the podcast with a contribution through Patreon or by buying some awesome gear on Teespring. I'm Anders Halverson. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Fisheries Podcast. And remember, when you're thinking about streams, you need to have multiple perspectives. Mm-hmm.